Welcome to New Covenant Church. You are listening to this week's message with Senior Pastor Chris Valdez. Well, again, if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start out again with verse 11 through 20. Before we do, I, I want to say one more prayer. Uh, this, this word this morning has a whole lot of scripture. I usually lose, use a lot of scripture, but this one's even a lot for me. Uh, but the word tells us that the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to us, and there is no better truth than, than the word of God. And so I believe he's going to speak using his word this morning, and I just want to ask him to bring that revelation to us. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your promise that your Holy Spirit would reveal all truth. Lord, I pray that as your word is read and spoken this morning, that your Holy Spirit would bring it alive in our heart and in our minds. Uh, And to those who may have never experienced that before, Lord, that this morning they will hear a word from you, directly from you, and know it's from you, uh, from your word, revealed uh, by the Holy Spirit, that they might be transformed from death to life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been looking at the armor of God in this series, and we've looked at four pieces so far this morning. We're going to look at the fifth piece, which is the helmet of salvation. And then next week, we'll finish up the series with the sword of the spirit. To keep the whole picture in mind, we've been reading the full text each week, and we're going to do the same thing again this morning. So starting in verse 11, and it'll also be on the screen, it says, put on Clothe yourself with the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand successfully against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to successfully withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So once again, we see that this armor is God's armor. It's armor that he gives us both to defend ourselves and to equip us to attack our spiritual enemy. We're reminded again that we don't wrestle against the physical flesh and blood that we see around us on a daily basis, but a spiritual enemy in the heavenly realm that is our true enemy. We also looked last week and saw that the, um, the enemy, that word that it says that he's scheming, the devil is scheming against us, that word literally means to like wait in hiding, ready to pounce and attack, waiting for an opportune moment to get us when we're at our weakest. And we talked about needing that shield of faith up at all times. And the helmet of salvation is the same thing. If we were to take that helmet off or not put it on, we're opening ourselves up to attack. And he will use that uh, opening to attack us where we are weakest. The helmet is obviously a defensive part of our armor. We also talked about things being an active part and, and, uh, I just lost the word, but, uh, uh, just a, a part, you know, you put on that armor and it's just there. Once you, it's equipped, you know, you don't have to raise it up like the sword or the shield. But once we equip our helmet, you don't have to keep putting it on. It's just on and in place, but we have to put it on. 
And so the purpose of a helmet is obvious. It defends our head from injury. Our, our head is susceptible to injury, uh, either from a blow, a sword, a fall. Uh, most of us may not have been in the military, but for those of you who are, have, have experienced putting on a military helmet, uh, we would be more uh, used to a bicycle helmet, a skateboarding helmet, uh, maybe a hard hat for construction, a motorcycle helmet. You know, all of those helmets, whether they're for military or recreational use, they all provide the same function. They protect our head from damage. And the helmet of salvation is exactly the same. If we are to put it on, it will protect our head, our thoughts, our spiritual mind uh, from spiritual damage. The lies that the enemy will try to tell us. Unprotected, he will use that opportunity against us to attack our thoughts and our mind and our position in Christ Jesus. So we need to put on the helmet of salvation to protect ourselves from these spiritual attacks. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In Christ Jesus, using the helmet of salvation, we have the ability to take every thought captive. Every attack of the enemy against our mind and thoughts can be brought to the submission of Jesus Christ. And they have no choice but to obey him. To fully understand the protection provided to our thoughts and mind by the helmet of salvation, we have to understand salvation itself. And salvation basically means to be saved or delivered from something. In the New Testament, it is generally used to refer to deliverance from the eternal death penalty of sin and deliverance into God's kingdom. We're literally saved, brought from death to life. I've heard an example throughout my life, and you may have heard it as well, and I personally think it's a a poor example of what salvation is. Uh, but one term, like trying to put it in a, in a physical aspect, would say, well, it'd be like we were drowning. And apart from somebody saving us, we would drown. But Jesus is like the lifeguard, and he sees us, and he comes and saves us before we drown. That's not what salvation is at all. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our transgressions. Dead, not about to die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are born into that sin. And we'll look at it in a moment uh, of what Adam and Eve did and how we are born into that. And apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are dead and we have to be brought to life. So a more literal example of that to, to say what we the shape that we really find ourselves in apart from Christ would be saying our corpse is on the bottom of a lake. Dead. <laughs> Jesus Christ comes and raises that corpse out from the lake, brings it to shore, resurrects us from death to life into a new life that we've never lived before. That's salvation. That's what Jesus Christ came to do for our spiritual death. And we literally go from a spiritual death, not not about to die, not needing help, not needing assistance, brought from death to life. And that spiritual resurrection is more of a miracle than any physical resurrection ever could be. This is our physical body. 
If we die and he resurrects us tomorrow, we're going to die again. But our spiritual life is resurrected once if we come to Jesus Christ. And we will never die again. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And if we receive that salvation, we put on this helmet of salvation. Jesus Christ himself to protect us, to protect our mind, to protect our thoughts. To understand this life, this true life that Jesus Christ makes available to us, we have to understand the state of our spiritual death apart from him. And to do that, we literally have to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God made mankind. He made Adam and Eve, and he made them without sin in a perfect relationship with him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We were literally created and brought to life by the very breath of God. That was our true life, our whole life. It was an eternal life in relationship with God the Father. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we see that God gave a command. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Satan came in the form of a serpent, and he deceived Eve, who ate the fruit. And Adam also ate it. And it was the sin of disobedience, a sin of pride. And it was their desire to be the Lord of their own life. That's the the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve, and that broke this uninhibited relationship they had with the Father. He literally told them, if you eat this, you can be like God. You can be the Lord of your own life. And that's the lie. That's the sin. It's not just that they ate a piece of fruit. It's that they bought into a lie that they didn't need God. They had a better plan for their own life than the creator who created them to be in relationship with him. An uninterrupted relationship with them with him, and they said, no, I want to try it on my own. And that's the state of death that every single one of us are born in. And apart from coming to Christ and admitting that and saying, you are Lord, you are God, you are the Lord of my life, and I'm going to lay down this life of death that I'm living to accept your life. Unless we come to that point, we will remain in that state of spiritual death. We're going to look at it more in a moment, but this desire to be free of God is why coming back to the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, requires us to willfully submit to His Lordship over our life. We have to acknowledge that we were never created to be Lord of our own life. That's why we fail so miserably at it. How many of you have experience at trying to be the Lord of your own life? How's it working out for you? How did it work out? Not too well. And why the best description of our attempt at life apart from a relationship with God is death. 
That's how God describes our life apart from him. Our life apart from him is death. That's the best we can accomplish on our own is death. But he says, I come to give you life. And I will take you, resurrect you from that death to an eternal spiritual life. But you have to come to the place that you admit that you can't be Lord of your own life. That only he can. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, and this is, this is where our, a lot of scripture I told you about begins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 does a great job of explaining this death. And I figured, why should I try to explain what God has explained so well? Starting in verse 1, and you were dead. Not drowning, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Everyone in this room today that can say they've come to that relationship with Jesus Christ and that spiritual life where just where you are if you're not in that relationship. Every single one of us was in that place of death before we came to that life. And verse 4, I love this statement. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Look at those words. We were dead in our trespasses. Dead, not sick, not drowning, among whom we all once lived in those passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of our body and mind by nature were children of wrath. But God, he made us alive, took us from death to life at the moment that we came to him and gave him our life and admitted that we weren't Lord, but he was at that moment. He took us from death to life. And it says, by grace, we've been saved because God raised us up with Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've literally been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And like I said a moment ago, that's far more of a miracle than a physical resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. So after their sin, Adam and Eve instantly died a spiritual death and would now physically die. And apart from God himself making atonement for their sin, they would have stayed spiritually dead as well. But God killed an animal and covered them with its skin And that was the first sacrifice for sin. Their sin immediately caused death. And this animal sacrifice system that God set up initially was the beginning of the law and a foreshadowing of what who was to come. 
Jesus Christ would end the need for a repetitive sacrificial system and would die once and for all, for all sin. And again, the best explanation of that is Scripture itself. So we'll read exactly how that happened in Hebrews 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that scripture is just saying that if those yearly sacrifices and regular sacrifices would have worked, they'd have had a clear conscience and they wouldn't have had to continually make them. But the fact that they had to make them over and over and over meant it really wasn't fully covering their sin. So verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. I want to stop there just one second. And we've talked about this before. But Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, did not come to this earth to be the Lord of his own life. He came to this earth to do the will of the father. He gave us a perfect example of what submission to the will of the Father looks like. What a relationship, what an uninhibited relationship with the Father looks like. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to make me a once and for all sacrifice for all mankind. And I love you so much, I'm willing to do it. And I love the Father so much, and I love our creation so much, I will gladly lay down my life for their sin. And he says, so I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's when on the cross he said, it's finished. It was all finished. It was all done. I can go sit now in heaven with the heavenly father because everything that needed to be done has been done. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we 
saw where our spiritual death came from in Adam and Eve's original sin. And we saw that the initial sacrifice system wasn't final. It wasn't complete. And that Jesus Christ then came and made a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Now we'll take a look at Romans 5 and see the clear picture of how God the Father made the way for us to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life again through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, dead in our sins, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one that was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. It's saying if one man could bring in sin, how much more the one man that brings in salvation and redemption and reconciliation. What God did through Jesus Christ wasn't just sufficient. It was more than sufficient. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Of one translation says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know how we ended up in a state of separation apart and death apart from God. We know that Jesus Christ made a way for that relationship to be restored and all our sins forgiven. All that remains is to understand how we receive this spiritual gift from God, this spiritual life this gift of resurrection from the dead it's a free gift romans 6:23 says for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in jesus christ our lord 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have to believe in Jesus Christ. Everything that we've just read, all those scriptures, we have to believe that with everything that's in us, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Jesus said, If we love the Lord with all those things, then we will find salvation. We come to him, but we have to believe it. It has to be a transformational work from our heart. Romans 10, 8 through 11 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We have to confess it, but it's not just a matter of saying a prayer or saying words. We can have a mental assent or know about Jesus Know that he died on the cross and it was supposed to be for our sins. But if it's not a personal relationship, if we don't come to that realization in our life, in our spirit, in our soul, and come to him and say, Lord, I realize I'm dead. There's no redeeming quality. I love in the Old Testament it says all of our righteousness, all of our best to offer God is like trash. It's like filthy rags. We have nothing to offer him. We're literally dead. But if we'll come to him and acknowledge our death, he'll trade our death for his life. But we have to be at that place where we truly mean it, where we're ready to lay down the lordship of our life and admit that that's the sin of all mankind and that we want him to be our Lord and Savior. It's not a one-time thing that gets us a ticket into heaven and then we go on our merry way. We come into a new place, a new life in a relationship with the Father. The day that we come to salvation in Christ Jesus is the first day of our life. Jesus said that it was like being born again, literally being born again. One Pharisee said, how is it possible? How can I get back in my mother and come out again? He couldn't comprehend it. And Jesus was like, you don't understand You'll be coming to life spiritually for the first time if you'll trade your life of death for my spiritual life. You'll be alive. That's when it's real. I shared a test, my personal kind of salvation testimony in the first service, and I'll do it again with you. Um, I grew up in the church. I was I was attending church nine months before I was born. I've always been in the church. I, you know, had Sunday school. We were, that was back when you went uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night at minimum. You know, that was that. You just that was the schedule. And so the the word of God, the truth of God, was poured in me. I knew the word I, as a teenager. Um, I even just self acknowledged. I knew I didn't understand it. It hadn't come to life in me yet, but I knew it. I mentally assented to it. I wanted it to be real, but it just wasn't. And and in my own mind, I knew that I could answer any question correctly. I could give you the Bible answer. I could tell you what I was supposed to do. I just didn't do it. 
it, it just, you know, I, I didn't live by it. It hadn't transformed my life. And I can't tell you how many times I'm going to give you the opportunity, if you've never come into this relationship before, an opportunity to pray a prayer of salvation. But there's nothing miraculous in the words that we're going to say. The miraculous is what the Holy Spirit does in your life when he brings you to life and that you really mean the words that you're saying. And I can't tell you, I I literally have no idea how many times I prayed that prayer of salvation throughout my life. How many times, you know, in places that, you know, you'd come forward or you'd uh, sit in your chair, you'd raise your hand, whatever the method was, and I did it over and over and over and over again. Hoping each time this this one's going to work. You know, maybe this one will be the real one. But there was a day that he transformed my heart. And there was, there was a relationship that I had with a pastor that he told me something that, that I think finally just shifted my faith into the place where it was supposed to be. And I was like, I, I, I trust you, God. I give you everything. And what he said was, if, if, because even, even into, into to adulthood, I'd questioned this. And so I was sharing that with him and sharing my heart with him. And he said, if you can trust God to save you, to take you from the bottom of that, like that corpse, to bring you up, to bring you to life, why can't you trust him to keep you? And that was my problem. My problem was like, I was like, I know I've said the first part, I just don't feel like my life is doing it what it's supposed to on the other side. The sanctification, the ongoing work of regeneration that, that Christ does in us. And he made it very clear. He just said, if he's enough to save you, he's enough to keep you. And it was like the light came on. And my life changed. And my heart changed. And I started seeing him do that work in my life. And, it, and then when I, I mentioned last week, I believe, maybe it was two weeks ago, about reading the scripture, that it came alive. And what used to be something, I did it because I knew I was supposed to. But then it came alive. And I can re, I, I'll, you know, I, I want to preach myself out of a job because I'm like, this is the word of God. I read this in its sermon. I'm like... It's just preaching to me by reading it. It doesn't need any other exposition other than the Holy Spirit doing a work in me, but he makes it alive. And we have to come to that place, each one of us individually. Pastor Darrell has a similar testimony, and you've, you've heard him, some of you have heard it shared before uh, many times as well, and I shared that as well. And I just love the way uh, it kind of went with, with, with what I just shared um, and just added to it. But he said he had struggled and battled with the same thing. And he came to the place where he told God in prayer, he said, if I go to hell, I'm going to go trusting in Jesus Christ. He was saying, all I know is to trust you. And if I'm blowing it, if I'm missing it, if I don't understand it, I'm going to go there trusting you. And that's really what it's about saying, Lord, I know I can't do it on my own. I know there's nothing righteous in me. I know I can't save myself. And once you bring me to life, I can't keep myself. But you will bring me to life and you will keep me. And when we come to that realization and lay down our death, our life of death, the lordship of our life that we hold on to so dear and let it go, he gives us spiritual life that will last for all eternity. And he'll keep us in it. We just have to trust Him. 
Will you bow your head with me? And we're going to pray this prayer together. And we can all pray it together. And my prayer is that for those of you praying it for the first time, or maybe for the first time for real, that it is being brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this will be different Not because of the words we say, but because the Holy Spirit, God himself, through Jesus Christ, is transforming you from spiritual death to spiritual life once and for all. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. And you rose from the dead. I give up the death of my life. And turn to your life. The cry of my heart. Is for you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to trust and follow you. With my whole heart with my whole soul with my whole mind and with all my strength please empower me by the Holy Spirit to do that in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to this week's message 